The following is a presentation by The Tabernacle, a community of changed lives. For more information regarding service times or if you would like to make a donation to The Tabernacle, you can do so by visiting our website at www.thetabchurch.com. We do not have a crocodile in our boat, though. Yeah. Hey, it's great to be with you, uh, Buckley. Uh, it's always great to be in this part of the country because um, when you're from California, we don't do green real well. And you're just green everywhere, so, so it's fun. Pretty, so yeah, pretty it's a gorgeous here. place to us. And um, and it's an honor to be here. I, as John mentioned, we met up at Promise Keepers Canada, and the thing that impressed me about John was, uh, you know, he's a gifted teacher. What amazed me is he's teachable, and those two don't always go together. And so, um, John, the, the questions he asked about professional stuff and personal stuff um, just impressed me, and so uh, it's an honor to be here, John. Thank you for the invite. And, um, and we are here uh, for the next couple of days uh, sharing a little bit about what we have learned about relationships. And the reason why we have such a passion for that is we know that you are going to evaluate the quality of your life based upon the quality of your relationships. If your relationships are going well, you're going to think your life's going pretty well. And if your relationships are struggling, you're going to think life's a struggle. And, um, and because of that, like all of our best memories in life come from our relationships, you know, John mentioned we're grandparents now, and we have, a, we have four grandkids running around. Our eight-year-old granddaughter, her name is Callan, which means? Mighty in battle. And, and she, when she was about three, this story takes place. Right, so she lives it out. She's always on an adventure, so we always have to keep an eye on her. And um, Brian, the other grandfather, he, he took the whole family to a high school basketball game. And as soon as Callan got in the, in the, the auditorium, she just, she just shot to the top of the stands. And up at the top of the stands, there's a railing at the back that she can easily fit through, and there's a drop-off all the way to the floor. So Brian's concerned about her, so he went to the bottom of the stairs and went, Callan, come here. I have a secret to tell you. And she's having none of it, not interested at all. So he tries again, Callan, come here. I have a secret to tell you. And she wants nothing to do with it. So Brian marched up the stands to go get her, and when he got to within earshot, she turned to him and said, Grandpa, tell somebody else. <laughs> and a friend of mine right now is raising a six-year-old son, and they were making dinner together in the kitchen, and the little boy, trying to be helpful, reached up on the counter, took a jar off, and tried to get the lid off the jar. Couldn't get the lid to come off. So he looked at his dad, and he said, Dad, would you help me with this? Dad said, sure. Took, it, took the lid right off. The little boy in frustration said, Dad, how come I couldn't get the lid off? And Dad said, well, son, this jar you picked, it has a child-proof cap on it. The little boy thought for a moment, looked at his dad and said, Dad, how did it know it was me? <laughs> yeah, great memories. Yeah, God knows you. God knows all about you. He knows all about your relationships. And today we're going to be sharing three keys um, to unlocking relationships. So we're hoping you take home the key that's just right for you. And the reason why relationships are on our heart, folks, is because they're on the heart of God. There's only one place in the Bible I know of where eternal life is defined. It's John chapter 17, 3. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the one place in the Bible where eternal life is defined it's not a length of time and it's not a destination. It's a relationship with God. And because relationships are a key to who God is and we're made in his image, relationships matter to us. 
And to help us process relationships, God put a book right in the middle of the Bible. It's called the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. And it's it's stuck right in the middle of the Bible. It is the story of a husband and wife and their interaction. And as they interact, God puts on display the, the relationship principles that help all of our relationships, from family relationships to friendships to work relationships. Um, these principles help make all of our relationships go. And in chapter 2, there's a little snapshot we want to share with you. Just three keys to successful relationship that are put on display that if we apply them to any of the relationships in our life, those relationships will get better. The first key to successful relationships is to recognize the value of those that you love. And folks, can I state the obvious? Everybody that you care about is a mixture of really great characteristics and really irritating traits. They all exist in the same people. And it's our choice every day which side we focus on. Like if you want to get frustrated with the people you care about, it's not hard to do. But if you want to see the value that God's deposited in them, it likewise is not easy to do. And where we learn this is right here. So in Song of Solomon, Solomon and Shulamite, Shulamite is his bride. They're interacting with one another. And we read these words. She says to him, I'm a rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Now, wouldn't you agree with me? This sounds like she's pretty confident. She said, hey, look at me. I'm, I'm like a flower. Like, look, wow. What you need to understand, folks, is that's not really what she's doing. What she's really doing is she's fishing for compliments. Okay, the Rose of Sharon, a little tiny flesh-colored flower that would grow wild on the hills around her family farm. If you looked out in the spring, you would see this flower everywhere up, up on the mountain. And the lily of the valleys is a small white flower. It was the second most common wildflower that would grow. And again, if you looked out, you would see these flowers everywhere. And what she's saying to him is, I'm so common, I'm so ordinary, you would probably never pick me out in a crowd. I'm just a leaf on the ground like all the other leaves. Don't you love it when women do this? They walk in a room, notice anything different? Oh, because at that moment, you're begging God for wisdom. Like, let me get this right. Because if you get it right, you're a big hero for the day. And if you don't get it right, you're just another insensitive male walking the face of the earth. Well, that's exactly what Shulamite is doing. She wants to know, do you notice me? And, And Solomon could not have responded better. Like, I just pray for moments to be this smooth. He says, like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. So his response is, whoa, 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 you do not get it. Compared to you, every woman on the face of the earth is a thorn, and you are the single flower. Now that's smooth. And we know it hit home because of the way she responds. Right. You know, oftentimes we set our guys up. You know, we test them. We fish for these compliments. We say things like, do I look fat in this? And there's no real safe way for a male to answer that question and not get in trouble. The closest Bill has come is, I don't know, I'm so bedazzled by your beauty, I can't think straight. Yeah. So, That's a good one. <laughs> um, but yeah, Solomon was super positive. So she boomerangs positive right back. And she says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among young men. Now, y'all live in a forest. And so as you're going through an evergreen forest, how many apple trees do you see? Like not very many, right? And so that's what she's saying. She's like, you're an anomaly. You're one in a million. You stand out among men. So she's being super positive. 
And um, studies are showing that that's what it takes to keep a relationship happy and healthy is five positive comments for every one negative. So it might feel like over the top positive, but that's what it takes to keep that relationship healthy. Um, She boomerangs that positive right back at him. And we'd like you to take a few moments here, folks, and make this personal. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to think about who, who are that, who's that short list of people in life that you carry on your heart? Like there's, there's probably a handful or two of people that you, that you just carry them with them. When they're doing well, you're doing well. And when they're struggling in life, it's a struggle for you because you just you care about them at a, at a level deeper than everybody else you've met, and you just carry them with you. So in your life, who are those people? Like picture them in your mind right now. And as you're thinking about those people, I want to show you a picture of the, the three people who became the most important people on our journey. These are our three sons, and uh, they just became people that, like, we just carried them with us, and everything about their lives affected our life. And, and remember I told you, everybody you know is a mixture of great characteristics and irritating traits. Well, it's true of these three guys right here. This is our oldest son, Brock, born for leadership. Uh, like, we knew when he was young, he would be a leader because he would boss kids around on the, on the, the playground. I told him all how to play correctly. So we knew he was going to lead. Was not born with an ounce of natural tact. So if you disagree with him, you're stupid. Now, would you agree with me that's not a good skill to take into marriage? Not, right, not yeah, real effective. Wives don't respond real well to that one. So, so we had to work hard at working some learned tact into his life. This is our middle son, Zachary. I don't know if you can tell from the look on his face. He has a little bit more personality and attitude than the other two. And he is as gifted as a person as I've ever met at reading people. Like he can come in this room, figure out how you're feeling and what you need to get motivated. Um, he's just really, really good at that. Um, he also is in love with that line between what's good for you and what's bad for you. And he likes to walk on it and lean over and has his whole life. Um, my young, our youngest son, Caleb, is, is a soft-hearted kid. He's always had a soft heart towards people and towards God may be the most naturally stubborn person I've met. Like putting him to bed when he was two was this, just one more ding, just one more ding, just one more ding. It's like, oh, you should go into law. <clears throat> and so we were praying about how do we help these guys see their value and not get caught up by the negative things in their life. And then we came across this verse in Psalm 145, verses 3 and 4. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. And we began talking to one another, how can we pull this off with these three guys so that they see how great God is and they see the value that they bring to life? And so Bill was a youth pastor when we um, were newly married and young parents. And I was holding Brock, a little baby, rocking him and praying, God, it seems like some kids seem to soar and succeed at 18 and some seem to stumble and fall. Like, what's the difference? And as I looked at those healthy families and those healthy kids, um, I saw that there was a pattern. And so I began to write down the leadership qualities and the practical skills that we needed to get into these young lives by the time they were 18. And um, the list ended up being about 100 things long. It's in our parenting book now. But that day I was pretty overwhelmed with this long list. And so I showed it to Bill. I'm like, look at all this stuff we're supposed to get into our kids' lives by the time they're 18. And Bill wisely said... Well, it looks like we've got three categories here. We want our kids to be learners, that in a highly informational age and with the importance of learning about the Bible, we want our kids to have an attitude that they're going to learn something new every week of their life. 
Second, we want our kids to be leaders. Now, we didn't expect them all to be upfront leaders, but we didn't want them just to follow the crowd wherever the crowd went. We wanted them to be intentional about their lives and invite other people to join them in that journey. And third, we wanted them to love God for themselves. We, we didn't want them to think about themselves as Christians just because their parents are. We wanted them to have a personal experience with Jesus that was meaningful to them. And we knew we couldn't make that one happen, but we believed we could set up an environment where it was likely to happen. So, so learners and leaders who love God became our goals for our, our young guys. And so we created this family crest. The, the two hearts means that Pharaohs keep their promises, especially in the area of relationship. And then the cross with the star. That represents our conviction that God creates everybody with a God-given dream. Like we don't believe God creates filler. He didn't look in this part of the country and say, oh, I've got an empty space. I'm going to create you folks to fill that no, he creates us all with a purpose, and to help us identify that purpose, he puts a dream in each one of our hearts to help guide our decisions. And we believed if our guys could identify what their God-given dream is, they would be naturally motivated and they would be willing to sacrifice for their pursuits. So each one of you, each one of your kids, each one of your grandkids are a unique creation of God. And that when you connect to Jesus in a personal way, he helps you shine out and live out that, um, you know, calling, that passion uh, for your good and for God's glory. And so that was our goal. And um, so I thought, okay, learner, leader, how can we make it fun? I didn't want our kids to think they're born into like feral boot camp. And so wow, let's have a party. And so what we would do, we would connect Learner and Leader Day, which for us is every September. But I bring it up because a lot of people um, use Christmas and the New Year as their time to do their Learner and Leader Day. And we always connected it to a fun activity. We called it Forced Feral Family Fun. And um, so, you know, taking to the park, the beach, something like that. And halfway through the day, we would there was a Learner and Leader chart that's in the parenting book. And you could just Xerox and put it in your fridge. And um, we would negotiate privilege and responsibilities a lot of times people are like you know Pam and Bill it doesn't seem like you fight a lot with your kids and it's because we spell it out who's responsible for what every year and so it's just a little bit less to argue about and then we would choose one trait off of the uh, list of leadership qualities uh, for each one of their kids an uh, area of growth in their life and then we would choose a verse that would go along with that trait and then we would pray that over each one of the kids and when the kids started reading we took them to like Bible Gateway we taught them how to look up their own verse that we would then choose and that they would choose and then we would pray over them and then it's like christmas or birthday we give them a gift a learner leader gift that um, applauds encourages that unique area of giftedness or strength calling and passion and so um let me give you just a little example one of our kids a little rough around the edges and so he's that kid that uses his shirt for like a Kleenex or a napkin. I remember thinking, ah, no woman's going to marry you. And so being a gentleman was his trait that year. And he came to me and he's like, uh, so we did the whole manners. Like I was teaching him manners and etiquette all week, all year. And he came to me one day. He's like, um, there's this science fair coming up, mom. And I know that you hate it when I burp. And so what if I like investigate, do my science fair over what makes you burp? And then I'll give up that thing. I'm like, good call. And so he won the whole science fair with this what makes you burp thing. And um, he, afterwards, they, there was this birthday party. And so he went out to the birthday party. The older two boys did. Um, but there weren't enough chairs for the moms. And so Zach remembers, oh, supposed to be a gentleman. Elbows Brock. Uh, we're supposed to give up our chairs. But my friend Tammy, she didn't take the chair. She ran straight to her truck. She picked up her cell phone and she called and she said, there's hope that Zach will get married one day. Yeah. 
And so that's just an example. Um, we'll take Brock. He's our oldest. He, um, his giftedness early on sports. He's just great at sports. Uh, intense in his sports uh, pursuits. And so um, he got gifts like maybe a gym bag with a verse on it, like run in such a way that you might win. Or maybe he, a poster of a Christian athlete that had been signed to him. Or maybe a video of a Christian athlete. Um, or Sports Spectrum Magazine, which is kind of like Sports Illustrated, but without the swimsuit edition. Um, yeah, so those are the gifts he got year after year. And he left a private Christian school, graduating class of about six, to a public high school of about 3,000. So he asked, what is my strength, passion, calling, uh, sports? So he goes out for the sports team. He's made captain of the freshman football team, captain of the JV volleyball team, and captain of the JV basketball team. And um, so when he was, so he comes to us, and he says, uh, my friends have these big dreams on their hearts, but I think they need God power to live them out. So what if we had like a party and we play some games, you know, I'll give some prizes and I'll share my personal story of faith and give my friends an opportunity to come to know God. And we're like, great, we'll buy the pizza. And so we had these pizza parties. And as a result of those three parties, three of, I mean, 34 of his friends came to know Christ in a personal way. As a result of those three parties, and he came to us, and he's like, um, yeah, there's, your van only holds seven, and we need to get like 30-something people to youth group so they can grow with God. Maybe we need something on campus. So he and some friends be, uh, formed Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and it grew to be about 200 strong. When Brock was 16, he was made the uh, starting quarterback, and he came to his team, and he said... He said, okay, guys, after we beat Fallbrook High School, let's meet at the 50-yard line, get down on one knee, and we're going to pray and thank God for the game. And all the guys are like, okay, we're with you, Brock. We're there. Count on me. Well, then they, they actually played the game, lost 38 to nothing. It was our son's worst football game of his entire career through four interceptions that night. And it was just a really bad night for a bunch of high school athletes. So after the game, all the guys just started wandering off to the bus, dejected and kind of depressed. And all except for our son, Brock, who kept his promise. He went down to the 50-yard line, kneeled down by himself. And I'd been filming the game, so I kept the video camera rolling, and I'm, I'm filming our, my son down on the 50 yard. And you can hear Pam on like, the video Bill, camera. Brock's all alone. Should I, like, run down there and pray with him? Like a high school quarterback wants his mommy to come running down the field and help him with anything. I said, no. And as I prayed, he's all alone. <laughs> the Holy Spirit inside me whispered, Pam, don't you remember that day that the whole learner-leader thing started? I mean, on that day, um, you also wrote up a prayer that's in the parenting book, and you framed that thing up, and you're gonna, it's ready to give Brock when he's 18. And in it, there's a line that says, Let our sons be like a Daniel or a Joseph, willing to stand alone for their faith if necessary. I'm answering that prayer. Leave the boy alone. And just then, three players from the opposing team came and knelt next to Brock. And we walked down and we wrapped our arms around Brock. And we said, Brock, we have always raised all of you boys um, with Psalms 8411. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. And son, you walked uprightly today, so God has some good things ahead for you. Um, and then our family motto is, uh, those who honor God, God honors. And somehow, some way, God's going to honor you for this day. Don't know how, don't know when, but there's going to be some honor somewhere down the line. Well, fast forward, Brock ended up getting um, several awards. He got a San Diego Citizen of the Year Award uh, senior year, which comes with a commendation from our governor and money from the NFL Players Association. Um, he was named Athlete of the Year, and he also, um, the faculty votes, and they give an award called Knight of the Year. 
And so he ended up with a scholarship to Liberty University to be their quarterback. And after he'd been at Liberty just a short amount of time, I did a book signing in Phoenix, Arizona, and I told that 50-yard line story. And the bookstore owner came up to me, and she's like, where's Brock the quarterback? And I said, Liberty. And she's like, oh, my hand, she's at Liberty. So we exchanged pictures and phone numbers of the kids. And I got a phone call from Brock. And I'm like, uh, Brock's like, hey, mom, you remember Hannah? And I'm like, yeah, did you ever introduce yourself? Well, yeah, uh, we've been dating. Oh, really? How long? Six weeks. Six weeks? Why didn't you tell me? Because I knew you would say, so you should listen to your mother. Um, well, the kids dated for about 18 months, and at the end of that time, they took uh, a week apart to pray and fast to see if this was God's relationship for marriage. And um, after that week, Hannah went back to Liberty. Brock had a ring designed in Los Angeles. It was flown to the football office, but he stopped in Phoenix to ask for her hand in marriage from her folks, and then he flew back to Liberty. He was sitting in a uh, football meeting, and he got a phone call. The eagle has landed. So he picked up the ring, and he picks up Hannah, who happened to have on a T-shirt that read, The QB is mine. And um, he took her to the place that they first met on campus and handed her a nail. Then he took her to the park bench. They always said goodnight and handed her another nail. Then he took her to the uh, chapel that they had prayed in together about their relationship. Um, handed her a piece of a board. And then he took her off campus where she shared a home with her friends and handed her the other piece of a board. And um, he took those nails and he hammered that, the boards into a form of a cross and hammered the cross into the ground and got down on one knee and said, Hannah, I want a relationship to start and stay at the foot of the cross. Hannah, I love you. Hannah, will you marry me? Hannah, will you kiss me for the first time? To which Hannah replied, yes, yes. And there's just something precious that happens in the heart of a mom and dad when you have prayed for that girl since before she was even born to hear her say in her vows, Brock, you're such a man of integrity. You can be my night of the year every night of the year, which eventually years later turned into this. Announcing that we're about to become grandparents. And now there's a new collection of pharaohs running around baby the world. Baby Eden, Baby Callan, Baby <clears throat> Rocco, William. And then Lil Sutton right there. So this is, this is our, our new family. Our family's gotten better looking every year as we add ladies to the mix. And um, so these are the people that are now on our heart that we carry with us. And we're constantly asking, how can we help each of them see their value? And my challenge for each of you is what can you do starting this week to help the people you care about see their value? Like we live in a tough world. And it's likely the people we care about are going to get criticized pretty severely. And you may be the one voice in their life saying, oh, God believes in you. I believe in you. You can do this. And help them see that they're valuable because they're made in the image of God. So the second key to successful relationships is to build anticipation. Folks, one of the greatest gifts God's given us in life is a sense of anticipation. Like, you do realize, folks, this could be the best week of your life. This could be that week that you get that promotion you've been hoping to get at, at work. This could be that week that that thing you've been praying about for a while gets answered. This could be the week that you meet somebody who opens up a whole new opportunity for you in life. This could be the week that everything just comes together for you. And, and if you have a sense of anticipation, it's going to get your eyes and your heart open to see what God's doing. So you can enter in and cooperate with what God's trying to do in your life. And... and Many of you like, are experiencing it this morning. Like Many of you came to church with a sense of anticipation. You walked in the back door and you're like, I, I bet something good's going to happen today. I bet we're going to hear something that's going to be valuable or I'm going to interact with somebody that's going to make me feel better about the week ahead or, or I'm going to get some new information that's going to fill in you know, some gap or I'm going I'm to meet with somebody who just helps something happen. 
And those of you that came in here with a sense of anticipation, you're going to go home and think, wow, church was pretty good today. That was great stuff. Now, some of you came in the back door with a sense of expectation. Like, church better be good this morning. <laughs> and people better be nice to me. And, and the music better be okay. And the problem with expectation is that it tends to breed disappointment. Because life seldom turns out the way we expect it to. And so when you have a sense of expectation, you tend to be disappointed and you wonder, gosh, where was God? But anticipation gets your eyes and your heart open and you, you tend to have a sense of, wow, that was really good. And in our relationships, it's one of the best gifts we have to apply to our relationships. And the way we see it play out here, um, Song of Solomon 2, verses 8 and 9, she says, listen, my beloved, behold, he's coming. And the context here is that Solomon has been on a, on a business trip. And one of the reasons why we love this, uh, this book is it's about a real couple. This couple has real jobs. They have real responsibility. They're, they're not a fake TV couple. They're a real couple. And we see them work out their relationships in real life. So he, he's the king of Israel. He's off on an extended business trip. He's been gone long enough that she decided to go visit her family at the farm. And back in this day, they don't have any forms of instant communication. There's no cell phones, there's no text messaging, no email, no Twitter, no Facebook, no Instagram. There is no way of instantly communicating with one another. And so she got in the habit of, she would wake up in the morning, she would come out on the, the front porch of the family farm, she'd look out to the hills and say, is it today? Is he coming back today? No. And then she'd go about her daily responsibilities. Next morning she'd get up, is it today? No. And then she goes about her daily responsibilities. Well, this day... She walked out to the front porch and she said, is it today? And the answer is yes. Look, he's coming. And I want you to see what she saw. Listen, my beloved, behold, he's coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Okay, what Shulamite saw was Solomon doing this. Uh, sir, what's your first name? Jesse, good to meet you. Jesse, have you ever run like that in public? <laughs> All I do not here. believe you. <laughs> I can say you're a better man than me. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Jesse, I can guarantee you Solomon was not running yeah. like that. Like Solomon is traveling with his entourage. He's with the men of Israel. There's no way he's prancing around like a gazelle. But the anticipation in her heart makes it look like that's what he's doing. See, and that's what anticipation does for us. When you have this sense of, I get to see my kids today. I get to see my family. I get to see my friends today. I get to go to work. When you have this sense of anticipation, it takes ordinary events and it, it transforms them. It's one of the reasons why when I go see my grandkids, they hear me coming before they see me. <laughs> Eden! Rocco Callan Sutton! I'm here! They're like, Papa! Because I want them to know I'm excited to see them and something good's going to happen when we're together. And that's what she's doing. She's got all this sense of anticipation. And, and to Solomon's credit, he kind of kept it going. Like rather go to the front door and say, I'm home. Instead, he went to the windows. Notice, he's standing behind her wall, looking through the windows, peering through the lattice. And he starts this romantic game. So rather than go to the front door, he, the implication is he went to the window and said, honey, I'm over here. And when she came to look for him, he moved. No, 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 I'm over here. And as she kept looking, he kept moving creating this romantic game, doing things with his wife he hoped his friends never found out about. Because <laughs> he wants to tell his wife, you have a place in my heart nobody else gets. 
And it's a challenge for all of us. Like all us guys that are married, we kind of need to ask ourselves, if the king of Israel can get over himself and play this romantic game with his wife, we can do the same thing with our wives. To get the message across to them, you have a place in my heart nobody else gets. And one of the, oh, see, so what is this big thing that they're anticipating doing? Right, the big event that requires all this anticipation is they're getting ready to take a walk. That's it. They're just going to walk around the family farm. It's springtime, and they're going to notice everything that's blooming. But what a nice invitation. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come away with me. So it's just a walk. But they have built anticipation into that walk. And how we do that in our relationship is what we call romantic rituals. Those are those little things that you do day in and day out to build anticipation. Like um, when you pass the car keys, say I love you. When you, before you hang up the phone, you ha- say I love you. Um, when your spouse walks in the door, you get up and greet them. We always think you should be more excited when your spouse comes home than the puppy is that your spouse <laughs> is home. And um, so just building in that uh, anticipation. If you hang out with Bill and I very much, you will see that we, our romantic ritual, um, one of them, is that we always say grace and then we kiss each other. And we've done that ever since we've been engaged. So almost 39 years now, and um, we have not missed a kiss after saying grace. And it's so much a part of our family system that our kids will flag us down. Like at a big banquet, they're like, remember the kiss and um we were with our grandkids the other day and um we had said grace we kissed each other but our little four-year-old Rocco was distracted and he went stop we're like what he's like papa kiss nana so it's just part of our family system and um when brock and hannah got back from their honeymoon um they had breakfast with us before catching the next flight. And I said, Brock, you want to pray and bless the food? And he's like, sure. And then he turned and he kissed Hannah and I smiled. And Hannah said, it's a feral tradition, you know, past that legacy of love from generation to generation. Now, um, our favorite romantic ritual though, is got to be a Canadian couple that shared this with us when we were speaking on a marriage cruise. And they said, Mom and dad, they wanted a way to communicate their love, even without words. So when they were first married, they decided that they were just going to hold hands and squeeze three times, meaning, I love you. And, you know, we, it was a part of our family. You know, we might be holding hands to pray uh, during, you know, Sunday dinner and Everybody would squeeze hands three times, I love you. Or we might go on a walk with Nana, Papa, they would squeeze our hand three times, I love you. Or we might catch them in church reaching across and squeezing hands three times, I love you. She said, yeah, at the end of my dad's life, um, he was on hospice care, and I was standing in the doorway, and dad was in the hospital bed, and he had not been able to talk for several weeks. And my mom, sweet thing, she had never left his side. And with his last breath, he reached across those white hospital sheets to grab the hand of the woman he had loved for a lifetime and squeeze three times, I love you, then entered heaven. If you're here with somebody that you love, just reach over right now and squeeze their hand three times, I love you. Pass on that legacy of love from generation to generation. So recognize the value of those that you love. Build anticipation. The third key to successful relationships is to remove obstacles. Because we're all human and we're imperfect, every human relationship has obstacles. And when you're diligent to remove those obstacles, relationships tend to flourish. 
And here Solomon and Shulamite, they're walking around her family farm. And she says to him, catch for the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. And these things that they call little foxes, you and I would refer to as gophers or moles. They're burrowing animals. They go after the roots of grapevines and cause what should be a flourishing grapevine to turn brown and wilt. And she uses that as a metaphor to say, would you look for the little things that tend to get in the way that create obstacles to our love for each other? And when you find them, would you remove them out of the way? And in our experience, uh, families that are intent on removing obstacles tend to have relationships that keep flourishing. And so we'd like to take a few minutes and share with you what we see as the most common obstacles to human relationships. And without a doubt, the most common are, are differences between men and women. The Genesis 1.27 very clearly says that God meant us to be male and female. That Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, that's back before the fall of mankind. It's back before all the problems started with the human race. And it's God's design that his image is so big it can't be reflected in one gender. So he made us male and female. So we reflect different parts of the image of God in our interactions with one another so people get a realistic view of how God operates in relationships. And, and people we've met around the country say, well, yeah, we get that. Like, we look around the room. Some of us in the room are obviously male. Some of you in the room are obviously female. Like, we get it. We're different. But we found most people don't know what to do with these differences. So we, uh, we went looking for a word picture to help men and women know what to do with these differences. And that word picture we came up with is that men are like waffles. And women are like spaghetti. So if I start with the men, if you were to diagram the way a typical man processes information in life, it looks like the top of a waffle. There's a bunch of boxes, and all those boxes are separated from one another by walls. And the way we as men operate is the first issue in life goes in the first box, second issue goes in the second box, third issue goes in the third box, and so on. And we as men, we spend one time in one box at a time and one box only. So when a man is at work, he is at work. And when a man is out in the yard doing yard work, he is in the yard doing yard work. When a man is watching TV, hello, he's watching TV. We do one thing at a time and one thing only. Now, as men mature, they do jump boxes faster than we used to. So at times we kind of imitate multitasking. But in reality, we're just jumping from one box to another faster than we used to. And this single focus that men bring to life it causes us to be problem solvers by nature. Like the way men like to operate is we go into a box, figure out what the problem is, assign a solution to it, and then we move on. And if we get to a box and we see what the problem is and we don't know what the solution is, <laughs> we just move on. Because <laughs> we cannot possibly think of a reason to spend time on a problem that we have absolutely no solution to. So we'll just move on. And for part of your life, folks, this is really valuable. Your family, the workplace, the church, and the community all need this single focus that men bring to life. But it creates some tension in your most important relationships because, well, because you ladies just don't operate like a waffle. Right. Social scientists say that men compartmentalize and women integrate, but nobody really talks like that. So if you look at the way God wired our minds, ladies, it's much more like one noodle laying on a plate of spaghetti. If you follow that noodle around that plate, it looks like it's touching pretty much every other noodle on the plate. 
And that's how we process life, is we travel through life making emotional connections to the people and things that matter most to us. And so by nature, we're awesome at multitasking. We can be on the phone with a friend, and her life's all falling apart, and there's Oprah, and she's talking to Dr. Phil, and he's saying, how's that working for you? So we're like, how's that working for you, honey? Yeah, you should come to the tabernacle. Those people are so nice. At the same time, we're writing our Christmas card list, our grocery list, our to-do list for our husband and our six kids as we're telling the kids, in sign language to quit fighting. Can't you see I'm on the phone? We have a load in the washer, load in the dryer. We're cooking dinner and we can open and shut the oven door with our foot. Right, girls? Right. Amazing multitasker. Um, It's a gift to the family, to the church, to the community. But sometimes that multitasking can be frustrating. And we'll be unpacking uh, that um, during the conference, how to make those differences work for you in all your relationships. But there is one little clue about dealing with men that's important for you to know this morning. Yeah, one of those differences you point out that seems to be most helpful is, um, ladies, some of the boxes in every man's waffle, um, they actually look like this right here. There are no thoughts and there are no words. And we as men, we park in these blank boxes. I, I'm sure you've seen it before. And we're not sure how you do it. You must have some kind of radar because every time we get in these blank boxes, you, you ask the dreaded question. So, hey, what you thinking? Which is really hard for us to answer because we tried telling you the truth. We said nothing. And your response is, you can't be thinking nothing. You have to be thinking something. So what is it? And ladies, I'm here to tell you, every man I've ever met has the ability to think absolutely nothing. Am I right, guys? Yeah. So you have to work these differences into your relationships or they just create tension when they should be creating unity. And so one of the most important skills that all of us can work on on a regular basis is learning to listen to each other because we really do speak different emotional languages. And to remind us of the importance of continually working on listening, um, check out this little video right here. Das hier ist ein Mindset-Tor. Das hier ist das wichtigste Gerät des Küstenwächter. Das Gerät und das Gerät. Überlebensradar. It's important that we listen to build a bridge to each other's hearts. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, obstacles and reasons why um, those hard times might come into a relationship. And sometimes it surprises us where those obstacles come from. Like um, our son, Zach, we like to say of our son, Zach, that he marches to the beat of a different accordion. And um, Zach was doing, we were doing the whole learner leader thing with Zach. Uh, and he was doing really great till he's about eight. And all of a sudden, he just starts spiraling ba- down, like bad attitudes, bad grades, negative around our house. And he wasn't very verbal. And so his answer when he was upset was just to beat up who's ever nearest. And I walk into the living room, and he's beating up his brothers again. And I'm like, Zach, honey, this is inappropriate. You need to go upstairs. Mama, come talk to you. He runs up the stairs. He knocks all the pictures off the wall. He slams the door, picks up a baseball, puts it through the door, hole in the door as I walk in. And I'm like, Zach, hon, you have got to learn to use words. Because I'm thinking in my mind, no woman in her right mind is ever going to marry you. You're going to live with me forever. Use your words. 
words. He put his hands on his hips. He's like, you want words? I hate myself and I hate my life. And if God made me, I hate him too. And I said, just a minute. And I ran downstairs. I threw myself across the bed. I prayed a frantic mommy prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm a pastor's wife. I'm a director of women's ministry. I write all these Christian books and I'm raising this little wild man of an atheist upstairs. Could you some help here? God, I know that your word says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, that we're a treasure, that you have a plan for us before that boy was even born. Um, but I can't see the treasure. I I, and Zach's not seeing the treasure, so help me help Zach see the treasure. When I said the word treasure, I'm like, oh, that might work. So I called Bill off the phone. I'm like, I have a plan. He's like, sounds like a great plan. Run with it. So I, I drew up this treasure map. didn't look this good. I taped some quarters onto the treasure chest. I marched it upstairs. Zach, you are a treasure to the world, I said by faith. And every day I'm going to ask you two things. What's one thing you did well? What's one thing positive about your day? We're going to write it down on the treasure map. And at the end of six weeks, mom and dad are going to give you X amount of dollars to live out that treasure. What do you think? Zach's response was basically... This is stupid. Eeyore. Um, so, Zach, what's something positive about your day? He couldn't think of anything. So I said, Zach, I can think of something you're alive, meaning I haven't killed you yet, kid. And so Zach is alive was the first thing on the treasure map. But then this miracle started happening. He started bringing the treasure map to Bill and I, all these positive things he was saying about, about himself and his day. And we found out some things about Zachary at the end of that time. Found out that he was great at sports, but we knew that. We found out that he loved music. We had no idea that music was kind of like a calming balm to his little ADD soul. And we found out that he loved people. And I, because he kind of threw us off because he beat everybody up. But relationship was really the key that unlocked Zach's heart and future. So from that point on, two tickets to whatever the church or community group was doing. So Zach had a friend to make good choices with. Well, fast forward. Um, this next story happens when he was about 18. He was a senior in high school. And um, he'd been recruited off of the football team to be on the co-ed cheer team. Because I put him in sports, I mean, to gymnastics because he was ADD, so I needed him to, like, get his energy out. And so he was the, the football player who, when he made a touchdown in his full uniform, could do a backflip. So he got recruited to be on this cheer team for those skills. And so um, they won nationals. And we were in uh, Texas, and we were going to go watch ESPN film the team. And so we got on this elevator, and this little boy, about seven, gets on with his sweet single mom. And this little boy is just out of control. And he is pushing all the buttons. He's bumping into all the people. And this sweet single mom finally had to deal with him and said, Zachary. And I just smile. I'm like, oh, I have a Zachary. He's just like you. ADD, ADHD. He has a club. And only little boys like you can be in it is called Hyper for God. Because he found out you could use hyper for good and not just evil. And um, he used to have D's and F's and stuff, and he used that hyper for good, and now he has straight A's, and he used to be like fifth string on the football team, but he used that hyper for good, and now he's first string, and we're, hey, we're going to go over and see him be filmed. Um, University of Louisville just offered him a scholarship to come be their captain. Would you like to meet my Zachary? And no kidding, the mom just pushed the kid aside and said, I don't know about him, but I want to meet your Zachary. I want to see a miracle. And that's just it. God is in the business of doing miracles. This is our son, Zachary, graduating with his master's degree from the University of Louisville, where they hired him to be the strength coach. And about five years ago, he got down on one knee and he said to beautiful Kaylee, Kaylee, I believe God crossed our paths. You were on the dance team at UofL. God brought me here to Louisville. Um, 
will you marry me? And the girl said, yes. And it's just a pleasure now to watch Zach. He's a motivational speaker. He's the strength coach, and he's a great husband and dad to um, Sutton and to Kaylee. And when I asked Zach, you know, what, what would you tell parents raising strong-willed kids like you? And Zach said, tell them to keep looking for the treasure because they may be the only ones looking. And um, Bill and I feel like that's what God did to us. God looked for the treasure in us. We're like a miracle. Um, our backgrounds, we, we're like the least likely people that should be teaching on marriage and family based upon just our backgrounds. You know, studies say that you repeat um, what you grew up with. But praise God that the spirit can break anything that you grew up with. So I grew up in a home where my mom was the dominant personality, but my mom was a... Uh... Grew up in a very abusive home, and she's a natural leader, and so she disappeared into her own little world. And my, if you can imagine, my mom's afraid of it. She's afraid of bugs, afraid of crowds of people, afraid of driving. Um, she currently only eats white food because she has white skin, and the list goes on and on. And being the youngest in my family, I learned as a defense mechanism just to shut down. Well, at 16, I went to an evangelistic movie called The Exorcist, which got me reading the Bible and First John 4, 4 turned the light on in my heart. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And when I asked Jesus into my life, I, I asked him in because I didn't want to be afraid of things in life. I didn't realize he was coming to bring a whole new purpose and he was going to rebuild everything. And I'm convinced the only reason I have a healthy relationship with Pam today is because Jesus invaded my life. And I'm the firstborn daughter, alcoholic dad, severe rage issues. I always thought that our family would make it the headlines, but not for a good reason. More like man shoots family, then shoots himself. A lot of domestic violence in the home that I grew up in. But my mom's best friend, a sweet, godly woman of a teeny tiny church in a teeny tiny town, saw the chaos that we were living in, and she invited us to come to church. And there's a little seven, eight-year-old girl. I met wonderful people like you, and I saw what love looked like for the first time. And I knew even then that I wanted to know the author of love, Jesus. And so we know that a lot of people struggle in their human relationships because they're trying to live apart from Jesus. And together, I'd like us just to take a step forward in that arena. So I'd like to, I'd like to pray with all of you. And if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes for privacy's sake. Before I pray, remember I asked you to consider people that are, you carry on your heart, people that are important to you. If any of those folks that you're, you, know, you really strongly care about, if any of them are trying to live apart from Jesus. Would you just raise your hand to represent them? I'd like to include those folks in our prayer. Father, we know you see these hands right here. And Jesus, these hands represent real people. They, they aren't imaginary people. They aren't possible people. These are real people that we care about. And Lord, we know the agony in their lives because they're trying to live apart from you. And so would you break through all of that? Would you break through their excuses, break through all the reasons they think they have for not following you, break through the hurt and pain, break through any bitterness that's there, break through any insecurity, and show them how much you love them and how much you care about them. And Lord, would you use us in the process to help them see that you are relentless in your love, that you are remarkable in your forgiveness, and that you are willing to adopt all of us into your family. And it may be the hand represents you, that you have been trying to live apart from Jesus. And if you're here this morning and, and that's you, and you're tired of fighting and you're tired of running, just where you're sitting in your heart, say, Jesus, it's my turn. I, I've been trying to live apart from you, and because of it, I've thought the wrong things, and I've said the wrong things, and I've done the wrong things. 
But I thank you that you died for my sin. And you rose from the dead so you're alive. So please come into my life. Forgive me for all that I've done wrong. Give me eternal life as a free gift. And begin today making me the person that you want me to be. Lord, your word says that in 1 John 4.18, we love because you first loved us. And so I pray for each person in this room that you would lavish them with love so that they can become a conduit, a funnel of love to all the people that they value. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.